Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if you got an empty seat next to you, will you raise your pretty little hand so so the people that come to the eleven twenty five service can find a seat? I think uh, we've also got a, call, a tween scene uh, class being dismissed. The, you can go out the back if you want to participate. Uh, welcome. Uh, I want you guys to know you're at Christ Church of Winchester. Uh, this is not Dave's church or Gerald's church or my church. This is Jesus' church. And so that means that we, we welcome all the people that Jesus welcomed in the way that Jesus welcomed. And what that means is there are no perfect people allowed here. That's it. Everybody else is welcome. The perfect people, we ran all them off. So if you're not perfect, you're going to fit right in. Uh, we're glad you're here. We're studying the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is a biography. It's about Jesus. It's written by a guy named Mark who was a traveling companion of a guy named Peter. Peter met Jesus. He was a fisherman, fisherman on the seashore um, and just kind of a roughneck guy, you know, um, worked with his hands. His hands were always dirty, you know. Uh, he knew about hard work. He knew about manual labor. And Jesus comes to this guy named Peter, and he says, well, you, you want to follow me around and learn from me. And so Peter knew Jesus as like this rabbi, and Peter's like, yeah, that sounds incredible. So he, Peter walks around for G, with Jesus for about two and a half years, and uh, Peter pretty, pretty quickly uh, on, he, he realizes there's something different about this Jesus guy. One of the things, Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and she got a fever, and, and back in that day, a fever could kill you. You know, whatever led to that fever was probably a bad deal. And so Jesus comes up to Peter's mom and takes her by the hand and lifts her up, and she goes from her deathbed to the kitchen, and she starts whipping up some biscuits and gravy. So this Jesus is, Peter's like, this Jesus guy is something different. There's another story where Peter's hanging out with Jesus. They're in this house, and there's this huge crowd of people because all these people realize there's power in this man, Jesus. And so they bring their friend to him. Their friend's been paralyzed since the moment he was born, and they, they drop him. They rip the roof open, and they, they lower the man down on a mat, and, and Jesus heals this man. This man leaves there. He's walking. He's dancing. And so there's like, there's something different about this Jesus guy. Peter's in a boat with Jesus, and Jesus comes walking on the water. And, and Peter's like, is that a ghost? And Jesus is like, no, it's me. Get up out of the boat. Come out here. And Peter's crazy enough. He gets out of the boat, and he starts walking on water towards Jesus. It's just one thing after another where this Jesus guy just proves to be something different than anybody had ever seen or heard before. Peter is with Jesus in this place called Caesarea Philippi. There on the hill is a newly built temple to the newest addition to the Roman god Pantheon. Uh, th this new god that's being worshipped in Rome is Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And so um, Jesus is there on the hill. Peter looks at Jesus, the temple's in the background, everybody's worshiping uh, Caesar, the emperor, and, and Peter says, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, Caesar isn't God, Jesus is God, and I'm going to worship him as my king and my savior. And this is a, a groundbreaking revolution, and from that moment on, Jesus turns his attention, and he starts focusing on these disciples that have pledge their allegiance to Jesus as their king. And so from this point forward, Jesus is going to start to teach his followers how to be his royal ambassadors to the nations, 
how to advance his kingdom to the end of the earth. Because this is what Jesus realized. He's not going to be with these people in the, in the flesh forever. At a certain point, Jesus is going to die on a cross, going to be buried in the ground. Three days later, he's going to come back to life. He's going to travel around with his disciples for 40 days. At the end of 40 days, he's going to ascend to heaven. And so now the disciples are going to have to carry on this mission that Jesus has given them without Jesus' physical presence. And so there's some lessons that need to be learned. A few weeks ago, we talked about if you're really going to follow Jesus, then you have to accept the fact that it's going to cost you something. There's some suffering required. There's some sacrifice required if you're really going to follow Jesus. Last week, Jesus really showed us how if you're going to please God, if you're going to accomplish God's purpose in your life, you have to do it in faith. You can't do it under your own strength. Uh, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible. But Jesus said last week, everything is possible for the one who believes. And then today, Jesus is going to teach us another valuable lesson. If we don't get this, we're not going to accomplish the mission. The importance of humility in advancing his kingdom and being part of his people. The importance of humility. So in honor of the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, let's all stand together. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But Jesus did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Setting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. We're going to stop right there today. My prayer is that we will see the dangers of pride and the importance of practicing humility within the family of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for every person that's here today. I pray a blessing on each and every one of them. Lord, I pray that you'll break our hearts today for the things that don't line up to your will and your way. Remind us that you're the God of all creation, that every good and pleasing thing, it comes down from you. Lord, help us to not run from you, your plan for our life. Help us to not be afraid of what you have for us, but Lord, help us to put down all of our pride and to humbly serve you and walk in your ways. Father, I pray you'll speak through me today. I'm a sinner I'm no better than any person in this room. They don't need anything from me. They need a word from you. So, Lord, please, just use me. I'm your instrument. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, pray a prayer, something like this. Father, speak to me. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Uh, Mark 9, 30, they left from that place. They're making their way through Galilee, uh, Galilee, Jesus is famous there. You'll remember last week when people saw Jesus, they, they were awestruck. Uh, it could be also be translated starstruck by Jesus. He was famous in this region, but he didn't want to be noticed. So he put his sunglasses on, the fake mustache. He wore the Florida hoodie because no self-respecting human would do that. He was incognito. Jesus didn't want to be noticed. Why? Because verse 31, he was teaching his disciples. The time is quickly approaching where Jesus will not be physically present with them. And they have to learn an important lesson. How to navigate this world. How to advance God's kingdom. How to do the work that Jesus has left them to do without him physically being present. 
That's a difficult task, isn't it? To be a light in a dark world. It's so easy for all of us just to partner with darkness, isn't it? Because it's all around us. It's hard to make famous and make known and praise the name of Jesus in a world that hates the name of Jesus, isn't it? This week, uh, somebody that goes to our church, they were flagged by Facebook because they posted basically that Jesus Christ is the only way. That was their post. It was deemed to be hate speech. That's the world that we're living in today, isn't it? And so it's hard to glorify Jesus in a society that hates everything about Jesus. It's also hard to walk in the way that Christ has called us to walk when a lot of the things that he asks us to do are completely contrary to everything that comes naturally to us. This is a difficult task. It'd be a whole lot easier if Jesus was just right here next to me, wouldn't it? If he was just walking hand in hand, he could just show me the way. Whenever I come up to some knucklehead, I'm like, Jesus, can you handle this person? Can you deal with this? It'd be a lot easier. But instead, Jesus goes to heaven. He sends back to us the Holy Spirit, and then he's left for us his preserved word. Verse 31 He was teaching his disciples, telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. After he is killed, he will rise on the third day. So he's spending this time with them, incognito, not doing public ministry because the Son of Man will soon depart from them and they're going to have to figure out how to do this without him. Jesus uses an interesting phrase here, the Son of Man. Uh, Jesus is speaking of himself, but he is referencing an Old Testament prophecy about the coming Savior of the world. It's found in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel, he gets a vision from the Lord, and he writes it down in this letter that he writes. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is describing the course of history unfolding. And what Daniel says is that as history uh, progresses, that uh, these beasts, these nations, are described as animals. And as history progresses, these nations, these beasts, become increasingly deformed and monstrous. So humanity, what Daniel says, has progressively devolved. And it's gotten to the point now where it destroys everything that it touches. Isn't that true? That we've gone, we've, we've, we've become less and less human, more and more animal-like, more and more following our animal instinct. And so much so that we are destructive in our behavior towards the world and other mankind. I'll give you a couple examples. The nuclear bomb, a a device that could destroy all of mankind. Some people say that COVID-19 was man-made. The internet, isn't that a destructive force in so many ways? Social media, isn't that? We've created ways of destroying each other. We've We've created ways of doing evil. But in verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel looks forward to the day that the Savior of humanity will step on the scene. I continued watching in the night visions, Daniel says, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so this is the picture that Daniel paints for all of us today. After the fall, after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, as history progresses, mankind devolves into beasts. And these beasts become more and more monstrous They've become, humanity 
has become subhuman. It's become less than human. But the Savior of the world, the Son of Man, the one who represents true humanity, the embodiment of what God intended when he created mankind, the greatest human to ever live, will restore the subhumans from every beastly nation and establish a world order so complete that it cannot be destroyed. This is Daniel's vision. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's telling them, the son of man is going to be betrayed, the greatest human to ever live, the savior of the world, the hope of humanity is going to be backstabbed by one of his friends and turned over to his enemies and he will be killed. Verse 32, but they did not understand this statement. What? It's not complicated, right? Let's go back from the beginning. The son of man is going to be killed. This isn't rocket science here. It's very straightforward. I think I can make a strong case that the disciples were teenagers. I think I could. <laughs> can make a strong case. Kids, go feed the dogs. Okay, dad. Two hours later, dogs barking, dying of hunger. Did you feed the dogs? Oh, you wanted me to feed the dogs. I didn't understand that. And I didn't ask any questions because then that meant I was going to have to do some work. That's exactly what the disciples are doing here. They understood the concept. They refused to accept the reality. The idea that the Son of Man would suffer the idea that the perfect human wouldn't be elevated, but instead would be humiliated. The idea that they, their fate may be the same as the Son of Man's fate, that was unthinkable. They couldn't even envision that in any way. They didn't want to understand it, so they didn't ask any questions. Isn't this what comes naturally to us? In our pride, we want to protect our ego, don't we? We can't really handle the truth because it'll mess up what peace of mind we do have. The truth of the matter is we're all afraid to find out the reality of our nature and our situation. That's why we don't like performance reviews at work, right? That's why we don't, we don't really want to tell people what we really feel or what we really think. That's why a lot of us, we don't like those birthdays at the Mexican restaurant when the whole mariachi band comes over, they put the hat on you, they sing to you because all eyes are on you. And if, if people look at you too closely, if you're held under enough light, if there's enough scrutiny over your, on your life, then maybe people will re realize what a failure you are, what a fraud you are, how unworthy you are. And so we'd rather not think introspectively. We'd rather not put ourselves in a position to be under authority. We, we would rather not do anything that may threaten our ego and crush our pride. We avoid those things. We don't ask the tough questions. Verse 33, they, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? Now, let me pause here. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but it is important. They were in the house. Chances are they were in Peter's house. Next week, uh, we're going to see uh, this picture of Jesus sitting in the house. He's on the couch. Uh, somebody's fixing uh, dinner in the kitchen. And Jesus pulls a child and sets the child in his lap. And this is the picture that's painted, and we miss this picture. This was a family. This was a family. It wasn't just a movement. It wasn't just a church. It just wasn't, wasn't just a revolution. 
It was a family. I want you to understand something about what we're trying to do here. We're trying to build a family. We're not trying to be the biggest church in Winchester. We're not trying to do some deal where we have a TED Talk and a rock concert every week and you come and you're entertained and you go home and then that's the end of your engagement with church. No, we want to do life together. And we believe if we do life together in the way that Jesus has prescribed, we will bring all sorts of glory to God and we will change this city. But listen, that vision is impossible unless we get this. It's impossible unless we get this. They're in the house and Jesus asks them the question, what were you arguing about? Verse 34, but they were silent. Why were they silent? They were silent for the same reason that my girls are silent when I ask them, why are my golf clubs being used to hold up a blanket fort? They knew they had done something wrong. Verse 34, they were silent because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. They're having an argument about who's the greatest. They knew in their heart that was an evil thing to do. So they were silent about it. Why were they arguing? Just a few days before this, you'll remember, uh, Jesus had picked Peter, James, and John to climb up the holy mountain with him where he revealed his glory. He left the other nine disciples down in the valley. And so those other nine disciples, they took exception to that. And they said, well, Peter's no better than me. James is no better than me. John's no better than me. They started comparing resumes to say, who really is the greatest? Who really is worthy of sitting next to Jesus on the throne? You see, it's in our nature, number one, to protect our ego. We don't want to put ourselves in a situation where our pride will be crushed. But number two, it's also in our nature to fight for the highest position. We long to feel loved and appreciated and respected and valued and noticed, don't we? It feels good. And it feels so good that that feeling is addictive. The more you get of it, the more you want it. If you ever like look at a celebrity and you watch kind of the trajectory of their career, they start off kind of normal. And then by the time like they're about to retire, they're like wearing like purple hair and they've got had plastic surgery and they went from looking one way to looking like some monstrosity. Why did that happen? Why do, why do celebrities get weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder? Because that's what pride does to you. It's an addictive feeling. Pride, that, that feeling to boost your ego, it will make people do evil things. Satan rebelled against God because in his pride, he wanted the praise that God was getting. Adam and Eve, they ate the forbidden fruit because they thought if they ate the fruit, they would be on God's level. Isn't that prideful? Judas betrayed Jesus. You know why Judas betrayed Jesus? Because he saw that Jesus was going to the cross to suffer, Judas wanted Jesus to be a ruling king. And so Judas thought to himself, my plan is better than God's plan. I'm going to force Jesus' hand. I'm going to hand him over to his enemies. It was pride. Politicians, think about this. What, what won't politicians do to get elected? What won't they do to stay in power? What won't they do to stay out of jail? Pride will make you do some evil things. What won't corporations do to increase their profit revenue? What won't bullies at school say and do to the marginalized kids in order to feel better about themselves? Pride 
will make you do some evil things because pride is evil. Pride is evil. C.S. Lewis, he said this, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Jesus had just told his disciples, his friends, he had spent the last three years with, bless them after blessing, after blessing, after blessing. Jesus, the height of humanity, the greatest man to ever live, God in the flesh, the hope of the world, worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. Jesus just told his friends, I'm about to be killed in an unjust and painful way. And what are his disciples thinking? They're not thinking about their friend. They're not thinking about their Lord. They're not thinking about the injustice. They're not thinking about his pain. What are they thinking about? They are thinking about themselves. How is his death going to affect my life? In their prideful, arrogant heart and mind, they thought the death of God would result in the elevation of themselves. That's evil. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. So this is what we have to do. Understand that pride is destructive. The Bible says pride comes before what? The fall. Satan was banished from God's presence because of his pride. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden because of their pride. Judas hanged, hang himself on a tree because of his pride. Think of the lowest moments in your life. Wasn't pride immediately preceding all those decisions to lead to that moment? The greatest threat to the church in America is not losing our 501c3 status. It's not vaccine passports. It's not the Biden administration. It's not Antifa. It's not communism. It's not anything outside of these walls. The greatest threat to the church in America is pride in the church. It's the people of God arguing with the people of God about who's the greatest. It's people inside the church who are so selfish and prideful that they would betray their Savior in order to get their own way. Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. Think about the church splits that you're aware of. On the surface, it seemed like it was about the carpet color or the style of music or what was happening with the finances or the leadership structure. But at its core, every church split is pride. At its core, it's one or both parties refusing to humble themselves in agreement with God's word, stubbornly determined to serve their selfish agenda instead of God's kingdom. Pride is the most effective tool Satan has against this church. What are the disciples doing? Jesus is about to go to the cross. They're about to step into their mission. What are they doing? They are arguing. They're divided. They're not going to be able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They're not going to be able to change the world if they're arguing among themselves. When the church is fighting among themselves, they can't fight against the devil or his schemes. It's impossible. And so this is what the devil wants. The devil wants us to be at each other's throat. The devil doesn't want us to get along. The devil wants us fighting over petty stuff. Don't let the devil win in this church. Amen? 
We have to put pride to death. If we're going to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish, we have to pursue humility and unity in this church, which is hard. Killing pride is hard because we're Americans. It doesn't come naturally to us, does it? We're trained from an early age to quote Ricky Bobby. You guys know Ricky Bobby, the great theologian? If you ain't first, what? You're last. That's, what, that's who we are as Americans. We're taught you've got to be the greatest. It's not enough just to be great. You've got to be the greatest. Who's the greatest? Michael or, in, or uh, LeBron? Right? We argue about it. <laughs> Who's the greatest? Ali or Tyson? Who's the greatest? Hulk Hogan or the ultimate warrior? Who's the greatest? Some of y'all don't even know who those people are. I feel sorry for you. It isn't enough to be great in our society. We fight to be the greatest. Make America what? Great again. It's part of our DNA. And so it come, it's so unnatural to us to fight against that pride. Verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12. Now when he sits down, he's taking the posture of a rabbi. Jesus is about to teach them a principle. Now this principle is revolutionary. This principle, if you apply it to your life, it will change the way you do life. And I think it'll change the outcome of your life. This is what Jesus says. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant to all. Jesus, he flips the paradigm. He flips the principle that the world teaches us, that American culture teaches us. He flips it on its head. He reverses it altogether. We're taught if you want to be the greatest, then you've got to, you've got to, uh, compete and you got to climb and you got to claw and you got to scratch and you got to kill and you got to cheat and you got to steal whatever you got to do in order to get that corner office whatever you got to do to get that promotion whatever you got to do to get in that fancier truck whatever you got to do to get that nicer house I gotta I gotta be the greatest Jesus says no if you want to be the greatest greatest of all is the servant of all that's what Jesus says now I want you to notice something Jesus doesn't discourage the desire to be great. He doesn't discourage that. He doesn't say, okay, if you got a Ricky Bobby attitude, then you need to repent because it's evil to want to wanna be great. The desire to be great is actually God-given. In the beginning, God gives a mandate to humanity. Do you remember God's mandate on humanity? Fill the earth and subdue it. That's a call to greatness. There's a desire within all of us to live a significant, meaningful life. That desire is God-given. So Jesus does not want you to suppress the desire to be great. Instead, Jesus wants you to redefine your pursuit and your definition of greatness. The problem isn't the desire to be great. The problem is the way we pursue greatness and the way we define greatness. The disciples were modeled that greatness is like the Roman rulers or the spiritual leaders of their day, the religious leaders. They were considered the most important people in Jewish culture. Now, the religious leaders, they pursued greatness in the same way many Americans pursue greatness. Power, possessions, and popularity. 
The religious leaders, they pursued the seats of the highest authority and influence. Whatever they had to do in order to sit at that highest seat, they were willing to do it. They wore the ornate and expensive robes and jewelry. They, they drove around in the lifted Jeeps and the fancy blue chromed out pickup trucks. All the nice things they wore and they, they, they wore, and they loved being seen. Remember, Jesus tells the story of these religious leaders and how they would pray. And Jesus says that they would go into the streets so that everybody could see him, and then they would pray these long, elaborate prayers because they wanted everybody to know how spiritual and how smart and how important they were. These religious leaders, whenever they would fast, they would go and they would sit on the side of the street, and they would wear their, their ugliest clothes, and then they would put like charcoal or ash on their head, and then they would just act so miserable, like I act when I'm sick. Oh, man. Because they wanted everybody to know how much they were suffering for God. They, they were like those people, you know those people that they pose all their, their uh, Bibles and their Bible study tools on the kitchen table, and then they put a cup of coffee right beside of it, and then they take the Instagram, you know what I'm talking about? And then they post it on there. They spend more time posing their little stuff than they do actually studying the word. You know what I'm talking? That's who these people were. They loved being seen. They loved having the nice things. They loved people thinking that they were important and powerful. Jesus says, this is the wrong approach to greatness. He says, in the kingdom of God, if you want to be the greatest of all, be a servant to all. He says, greatness in God's eyes doesn't come from prideful self-promotion. Instead, greatness in God's eyes comes from humble service. It's totally opposite of the way we're trained. Now, uh, next week, this is a two-part sermon, and you're welcome for that. I had a two-hour sermon prepared for you, but I'm not going to do that to you today. And I'm getting kind of hungry, so we're going we're gonna to stop right there as far as this passage goes. Next week, I want to talk to you practically about what it, what it means to live a humble life, how to live that out, how to flesh it out. But today, I want to finish our time by reading a passage from Paul. And Paul takes this principle that Jesus gives us, this revolutionary, and he fleshes it out. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, Paul's saying, I'm talking to the Christians. If you love Jesus, if you want to serve Jesus, then you need to listen up. He says, make my joy complete. As your pastor, he says, think about all the wrinkles that you've put on my face, all the gray hairs you put in my head, all the trouble you've caused me. You want to make me happy as your pastor. This is what he says. Figure out a way to get along. Have unity. Make my joy complete, thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul says, one mind, one heart, one spirit, one purpose. Be as one. Pursue unity. Verse 3, how do we do that? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Can I encourage you? Memorize these two verses. Underline them in your Bible. Highlight them. Write them down on a post-it note. Put it on the mirror. Memorize these two verses and decide today, I am going to interact with my family and my church family with these two verses. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You apply that to your life, it will change your marriage. 
It will change the way you interact with your children. It will change the way that you interact and socialize in this church. Years ago, I was, I was counseling a married couple, and they came to me because the husband was upset with his wife. He said, she's wearing these clothes that are like provocative to the gym. It's like a sports bra and spandex, and I just don't appreciate it. I don't think it's appropriate. Well, she said, well, it's my body, and I can wear whatever I want. Now, let me say, in the world, that's how it works, right? That's how it works in the world. This is what Jesus is saying. We do things different. We do things different. That's selfish ambition. That's vain conceit. I counseled another family. There was a husband. And the husband, he hang out with some of his buddies from high school and college that the wife didn't trust. And so she comes to the husband and she says, I don't like you hanging out with them. They're a bad influence. Whenever you hang out with them, you drink too much. Whenever you hang out with them, I I see you're flirting with other women. And I don't appreciate it. The husband said, I'm going to hang out with whoever I want. That is selfish ambition. That is vain conceit. You know what I see in a lot of churches? I see a lot of people coming and knocking on my door. They're knocking the door down, asking, okay, I want to preach. I want to teach. I I want the platform in some way. You know what I never see in a church? I never see people knocking on my door, knocking the door down. I want to clean the toilets. I want to scrub the floors. You see, it's selfish ambition. That's, That's the way we're wired. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. What is humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not saying, oh, I'm stupid and I'm no good for nothing and I don't deserve anything. That's not humility. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Just as much as I'm interested in what's important to me, let me be just as interested in what's important to you. Just as much as I'm preoccupied with what I need, help me to just as much be preoccupied with what you need. Don't look just to your own self-interest, Paul says, but rather to the interest of the others. And let me just say something. If we can apply that principle in the way we interact with each other, in this church, it starts here, then it could change the city. It could change the city. This is what our world needs. Our world needs a model of the way God intended things to be. What the world has is a bunch of beasts. That's what the world has. It has beasts in in every political office. It has beasts in in the school system. It has beasts as teachers. It has beasts as celebrity icons. It has beasts on the radio, beasts everywhere. You got a beast living your next door neighbor, and some of you say amen. Beasts everywhere. You know what the world doesn't have? True humanity. True humanity. That's what God is calling us to. Help us to be that. And you say, why? Why would I treat these people like that? They suck. They're womanizers and they're gossips and they're meanies and I don't like them. They don't deserve for me to treat them that way. They don't deserve for me to be interested in their needs. Why should I do that? Look at verse five. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Here is our motivation for everything we do as a Christian. It's not about what they deserve. It's about what he deserves. Why? Why do it? Because we are Christians. Every one of you in this room, most of you in this room, you self-profess as a Christian. Being a Christian is not following a list of rules. Being a Christian is following a person named Jesus. Jesus. 
We do as he did. We live as he lived. Who, verse 6, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. This is God in the flesh, greater than Caesar, higher than the angels, worthy of all honor and glory and praise. This is the man. All the things that you think you deserve, this man actually deserved. But he didn't take advantage of his rights and privileges as God. Verse 7, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had, he came as a man. Fully God, and yet he pressed pause on all his privileges as God. He subjected himself to the will of the Father in heaven. He operated solely by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't operate in his own divine strength. He trusted the Holy Spirit to empower him, and he lived like a human, just like you and I. He came down here not as a king. He didn't come living in luxury, surrounded by servants, protected by an army. He came as a defenseless, dependent baby boy. He was born into one of the lowliest families in the lowliest places that you could imagine. His dad, his stepdad was a handyman. His mom was a teenager. The king of glory, surrounded by angels who praised him day and night. He stepped off his throne. He came down to earth, and he didn't come and just live some cushy, comfortable life. No, he actually put on the robe of the lowest slave in the house. He got on his hands and knees, and he washed his disciples' feet. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross, the perfect man, the height of humanity, the manifestation of the greatest good, willingly took on torture and terror and violence and humiliation by crucifixion. He didn't wear a golden crown. He wore a crown of thorns. He didn't sit in an ivory tower. He hang on a wooden cross. A death reserved for runaway slaves, Jesus willingly walked into it like a sheep led to slaughter. He did it as an act of obedience to the Father and as an act of sacrificial service to you. And for this reason, for what reason? For the fact that Jesus so willingly humbled himself. For the fact that Jesus so willingly subjected himself to the will of the Father. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus Christ, the homeless, penniless preacher, Mary's son. That's what they called him. You know what that means? It was a way for say, to say Jesus was a bastard. Mary's son, the Nazarene. They said nothing good comes from Nazareth. It's like Irvin. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. The one cursed on a tree. They said everyone who dies on a tree is cursed, despised and rejected by his own people. The people he grew up with, they hated him. They ran him out of town, abandoned by his closest friends. His closest friend backstabbed him, turned him over to his enemies to die. He's buried in a borrowed tomb. The man didn't even have the money to take care of his final expenses. And yet this man, Jesus Christ is the most influential man who's ever lived, and it's not even close. What does that tell you? The way to greatness is not selfishness. It's not pride. It's humility. It's service. You want to live a great life, follow this man's example. Verse 10, 
so that at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Here's the truth. Every single one of you, every person that's watching online, there is coming a day when you will bow. All the kings, all the queens, all the emperors, all the chancellors, every scoffer, everyone that profanes that name now. You may be living in pride and arrogance now. You may be living as if you do not need him now, but I promise you there is coming a day when he will tear open the skies. He'll come down in glory, and when you see him face to face, it will put you in your place, and it will put you on your face. And so this is what I would encourage each and every one of you to do today before it's too late. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. You don't have to lift yourself up if you humble yourself in his sight. You don't have to make your name great if you make his name great. Greater than yours. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will. You will confess. Confess today. Submit today. Humble yourself today. Listen to me. You think my path to greatness, you think my path to my best life is my way. You think it's trying to get the praise that God got. So you're going to rebel against God. You think it's going and finding that forbidden fruit and eating that thing that looks so appetizing. You think it's betraying Jesus so that you can have your way in your time. But listen to me. That path is a path to destruction. The path to life is a path that starts by saying, Jesus Christ is Lord and I am not. Jesus Christ is Lord, Caesar is not. Jesus Christ is my king, and I will serve him with my dying breath. That's the path to greatness. The man most humbled has become the man most exalted. And so here's the question I want to encourage you with today. Are you partnering with the king of glory in humility, or are you sabotaging him with your pride? Are you arguing with your brother in competition or are you outdoing one another and showing honor? Are you imitating Christ or are you imitating Judas? Judas was cursed. Christ was exalted. May we adopt the same attitude as Christ. May we set aside our vain conceit and our selfish ambition. May we put to death in this church gossip and slander and backbiting, and competition, and jealousy. May we be a church that is quick to ask for forgiveness and to give forgiveness. May we be a church who looks out not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of every single individual in this church for the glory of God following the example of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. May we pursue unity at all costs to spite the devil, because he hates it when we do that, to bless your poor old pastors, because you know you're hard on us, and to bring peace to your brother, to bring glory to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you loved us so much that you stepped out of the throne room of heaven 
where you were surrounded by angels day and night, praising your name, giving you what you deserve. You left the comfort of heaven and you came down here and you put on skin and bones. You put on a body that gets a stomach ache and it gets a headache and it gets tired. And you surrounded yourself with a bunch of knuckleheads just like us. And you lived a perfect life, the height of humanity. No one has ever done anything like you've done. Only you, Lord, were able to do it. And at the end of all of it, as a thanks, you didn't climb up on a throne. You climbed up on a cross. You didn't take a gold crown. You took a crown of thorns. You didn't hold a spear in your hand. Instead, a spear was driven in your side. You died for us, Lord, as an act of sacrificial service I pray that that truth falls on each and every person in this room today. May we, Lord, be crushed in the weight of your goodness and your glory, Lord. Make us nothing so that we make you everything. You deserve it all, Lord, and we fail to give it to you. Please forgive us, Lord, for our pride. Please forgive us when we walk in such arrogance. Give us a heart that's humble. Give us a heart that loves you so much that we will love our honorary brothers and sisters. If there's any person in this room today, Lord, that's far from you, Holy Spirit, convict them. Cut them to the heart, even now. Draw them near to you, Lord. Help them to know that true life begins once we die to ourselves and we surrender to you. Lord, have your way in this place. Have your way in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. We sing a song at the end of service. This is an opportunity for you to draw nearer to God. On either side of the stage, we have emblems, a cracker, and juice. This represents the body of Christ that was beaten and broken for you. Jesus took the beating that you deserved. Here's the good news to that. There's a reminder. Because he's took the beating, there's no more beatings to give. And so when you stand before God, because you are in Christ, there will be no judgment or punishment for you, only reward. It's over. It's taken care of. And that blood, the cup, represents the blood of Christ. And as you drink it, allow his forgiveness to wash over you. Be reminded today that you are cleansed. As far as the east is from the west, so are your sins separated from you. God doesn't even remember me anymore. They are gone. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. He doesn't see somebody that's rebelled against him your whole life. Instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Celebrate that today. We also have altars on either side of the stage. If you're carrying a burden that's too heavy for you to carry, you can come and kneel at these altars. One of our prayer warriors will pray over you. There's power in prayer. We believe that prayer works. So I'd encourage you to come. If you're here today and you're far from Christ, Will you please come talk to me? I beg you. Surrendering to him is the best decision that you will ever make. I promise you, your life will never be the same. If you will just come and speak with me. I'll be standing right here. As we sing this song, come.